Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast, where we navigate our political and cultural divides with a chaser of civility. We invite you to grab your favorite beverage and join us as we explore our differences and build bridges across our divisions. Hi, this is Jeff, and I'm here with Trygve from Norway, is it? Yep. I think I will let him introduce himself. He is at CuriousNTT on Twitter. Hi, welcome. Yeah. Thanks. So, yeah, my name is Trygve Taranger, and it's probably easy for English speakers to refer to me as Entity or Curious Entity, which is why I chose that handle. I, I have a background in music, religion, media, and uh, yeah, I've I studied psychology off the books as well and philosophy, and uh, yeah, I've been ar- I've been around. Oh wow, I'm already excited. Um, I think we're both drinking tea today, so we'll do a whole yeah. my tea episode. What what are you drinking? Yeah, so since you since you explained the thing about tea, I I thought, hey, that sounds like a good idea. I should get something to drink, drink as well. So I checked what we had, and tea looked like a good option because we had a full can lying around. So. I just took, took some of these and put it in the microwave. Okay. <clears throat> and I have this, uh, it's this kava, it has kava in it. It's a kava tea and it relaxes, it has a relaxing effect. So I'm going to have my kava tea. So we were talking earlier about, I know you have an interest in social justice and we were talking <clears throat> earlier about the U.S. and you said you're starting to face it more and more, even where you are. So maybe we can start on that and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and uh, when I say I started to face it more and more, uh, I really only started noticing it as far back as around 2014, 2015, though I didn't really understand what I was looking at then. But uh, I'm not that old. At that time, I think, well, I guess I was about 14 14 years old, 14, 15, 16, that age. Is that high school in Norway? Yeah, just about. I started started noticing it around high school. And... uh, I, re- I started realizing that people who call themselves liberals didn't actually understand or believe in liberal principles. And I, I, I asked, why is that? So I tried looking into it and started following, you know, the big names from that era, people like Sargon, because he did a lot of work trying to understand the philosophy of it and analyzing what was actually going on. And uh, a couple of months later, Jordan Peterson came on the scene and uh, well, remember- he kind of blew up. Do you remember some of the incident, like some of the things you started to notice that made yeah. did you see the dissonance? Yeah, the the first thing was probably something in around twenty twelve, I believe it was, when uh, when people when there was a local debate in uh, in Norway about uh, somebody who had uh, I think it was jokingly called somebody else a Jew, and uh, and then there was a, a serious debate on Facebook about how this about how this was hateful language when it was used like that and. Uh, I defended it as uh, within within the realm of free speech, and uh, I got some support for that. But that was the first encounter. A couple of years later, we had something in history class at high school, which caught my attention, when we were told about the uh, Second World War and how Norway had treated the Jews back then. So the books told us about how just under half of the half of the Jews were taken to. Germany, and you know, you know what happened there. So obviously, nasty stuff. But uh, they also mentioned something else that I thought was curious that wasn't even mentioned by the teacher, 
so I just asked about it. And that was uh, how just about all of the rest were smuggled to, to Britain, which uh, suggests a lot, a lot more of a nuanced picture of Norway than the one that was presented in class, which was one of just guilt, feel ashamed for what ancestors did. So my question was, shouldn't we be proud that about half of our ancestors, ancestors helped them as well? And the class went dead silent and didn't know what to think. What did the teacher say? Uh, just shocked. There, was, there wasn't really a response. The class kind of, kind of just moved on. Wow. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, around the same time, I started having some weird dreams, which made me even more interested when, you know, Peterson started talking about dreams and Freud and Jung and all of that, because this, this dream fit right in. So I dreamed that the high school I was at, which is a high, high quality one that was very recently built at the time, which specialized in the arts. So you know what kind of people are usually drawn to the arts, open, creative people, who also just happen to be, also happen to tend to be on the left. So we, we had this kind of people in a, in a huge fancy new building. And uh, in my dream, this building was one of the places that appeared and they kind of just swapped at random. It was uh, inside the building with the, the concert hall replaced by a giant, you know, labyrinthine playground kind of thing, a giant uh, multi-level maze. And uh, I, I dreamed that everybody I knew at school were in that maze, and uh, everybody was lost. But I, I was the one. I got to the top of the maze and looked down, and then I saw that one of the first floor rooms was actually a place where people got my, got uh, brainwashed. So that's quite the dream. That's a striking image. <clears throat> yeah, that's what I thought too. That's why I still remember it. <laughs> Where did, where did you go from there? Well, let's see. I think that was early 2016, late 2015-ish. So it was before Peterson got on the scene. But uh, from then I got to high school. I started uh, going to a university college to learn about music more. I'd been told that our, our courses at high school were at, uh, at the college level. And I t it turned out they were right because there was very little new stuff to learn. <laughs> But uh, that meant I had plenty of time to do other things. And uh, I got involved in student politics around the second year because I, I heard some of the speeches they made. And it's, it just struck me that it was very kind of collectivist feeling. I don't remember exactly what they were saying, but it seemed like they were thinking about people as a mass rather than just people, just singular people. And that bothered me a little. So I, I said, uh, I, I put myself up for election saying that I would, Make sure to re to remember that remember people as individuals and uh, got enough support to get in. You got elected. Yeah, uh, I think uh, substitute position, but uh, it's still an election, you know. Were you able to do anything? <laughs> yeah, I I had I had some effects, but for the most part, it was within reason. It really got, started got, getting crazy. My well, the sentiment of the of the parliament was uh, crazy from the start. But uh, there were two voices of reason there, so it wasn't all that bad. Turns out, if two people, if some people speak up, people start hesitating, you know. So we had me and uh, one one who who I later came to know a lot better. Became friends with him about four years later after really clashing in the in there because both are very very strong mind strong minded. 
with the powerful opinions. He's probably one of the most intelligent people I know. But he has also had a very nasty background, and it uh, it had impact in a lot a lot more then than it did later. That was before he found Peterson and had a personal change of heart and development. But uh, as for me, well, I haven't changed very much since before then. I was I was pretty stable. So we had us saying talking about things in a very different way and challenging ideas, such as hey, we need to use up the remaining money we get from get from the state because if we if we don't we're going to get less next year and we totally need all this money that we don't know what to use for <clears throat> so so yeah i challenged that idea and said if you want to use if you want to do it for pr let's let's at least use it for something that lasts instead of something that that goes away in a year or something mm. and uh didn't have an effect but later last year i was there we got some more interesting cases because then uh, we had a certain uh, request from uh, the administration to announce on behalf of the school, of the college, that uh, that we would boycott Israel. And that, that just seemed out of place, you know, for a parliament to say on behalf of its constituents. You're talking about the, the government, the Norway parliament? No, the student parliament. Okay. Student parliament, so yeah. local democracy. Make the decision for the entire college. And I thought, this seems like it goes too far. Uh -huh, I so I, I, just, I just voiced that in, the, in our chat room and said, I don't know about this. It seems like this is not our place. And uh, people agreed. So that case was dropped. Oh. But two people were very, very enthusiastic for it and seemed really disappointed by that development. And what year is this around? That was, uh, I want to say last year, actually. So after the George Floyd, or around the George Floyd? After. It didn't actually change very much in Norway, at <clears> least <throat> not where I was. Small town, you see. Small, small, very scenic town with uh, with almost only one thing of interest to it, which was the college. Oh. <laughs> it, it got, I noticed a lot more of George Floyd when I later moved to the biggest university in, uh, in the country, where I'm, where I'm right now. NTNU, it's called. So there you see it in the streets. So I'm really quite ignorant about Norway. Like I said, I watched the Scandinavian mysteries on streaming, but that's that's my only window. Um, right. You don't have the history with African Americans and racism and that the U.S. does, and it's predominantly white. It seems so. How? What form is it taking there? Like, how is it manifesting in Norway? What are they using in Norway to get converts, I guess? Well, I think the main cases they're using right now are, or causes, I should say, are the the Lapmi Lap communities, our, 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 our own indigenous people, where they try to apply to apply post-colonial theory to to get people along, and also the trans stuff, you know. Oh yes, because <clears throat> that's happening everywhere. The trans. Yeah. The... Um. They, I, yeah. they have more too, though. We have systemic sexism, for example. They talk about that. I I ran into that in uh, in a committee last year. Is that the patriarchy? Like. It is. Uh, You're kind a of. Oppressor. 
kind of how how I ran it ran it was we had to we had to settle on a on a plan for PhD grants in the committee I was on the research and development committee and uh, and uh, I read through all the documents and uh, they described how this process was was selected in part based on the sex of the of the applicant and I said. I know that we are legally obligated to do th- do it like this in Norway because we are, but I can't, in good conscience, uh, assent to this. So instead, I I just would like to not vote on this case because I can't offer an alternative that would uh, that would uh, fulfill my conscience while also complying with the law. So I said just about that and uh, got a small rant from the administration there about how. Systemic sexism was in place, and and we still had a long way to go. Which, of course, everybody who knows about the equality paradox knows that it's the other way around. If anything, talk a little bit about the equality paradox. Because an- another thing um, with you is you have kind of a unique take on what. Because you're seeing it from a perspective that a lot of us don't or are not able to. So, um, I want to hear about the equality paradox, but then maybe also a little bit about your view of why this is happening, how it's happening, where it, where you see it maybe headed and things we could do to turn it around. Right. So as for, first of all, maybe let's start with the equality paradox, just the basic idea. It's Most people who follow John Peterson have probably heard him talk about it. And uh, truth be told, I haven't looked into it personally very much, but the tendency is pretty clear. And everybody I've, I've checked out seemed to find the same thing which is that uh, the more equal a country is considered, the greater the gender differences or the sex differences in, in vari- along various metrics. So I think it was uh, Iran or something, which had a way more, a far higher ratio of uh, female, female STEM, uh, what, what's the word? STEM, uh, well, people at least. Graduates or students. Yeah, yes, yeah, graduates is good. So there are far more females than graduates, and uh, and you would think the opposite, right? Because uh, Norway doesn't. Norway is very is very intent on removing all these kinds of barriers, and if anything, this country has the has it the other way around. Being Islamic and all of that, but uh, that's not what we find. So the basic idea that's possible to explain it is that uh, as we remove the as we remove all by all the societal barriers, what we're left with is personal choice, and those choices are going to be they are going to have tendencies in that differ across the sexes. For example, is that where bias comes in, or implicit bias? You could talk about biases, but I think implicit is it's kind of silly here because it's a different kind. This is more like what you want bias, rather than how you rate things. Motivation, interest. Which oh. is obviously sexist to talk about in these days on Which, these topics. I mean, I call all of that nature, and I know there's a big debate now on sex differences and biological differences in male nature, female nature. Are they really different? Yeah, there is definitely debate going on, and it seems to never die, even though the evidence is pretty clear as far as I've understood. And the gender equality paradox is itself evidence, because unless you want to say that the things we've been doing to to forward gender equality, have done the opposite. And we are not actually more gender equal than, say, Iran. And in that case, Iran is a more 
feminist and more fair country than Norway and uh, USA and all of these. Unless you want to say that, and that the entire methodology that has been applied accomplishes the opposite of what it tries to do, then uh, then you're going to have to say that it, that it just doesn't work like that. <clears throat> that sounds like um, logic, rationality, reason, all the stuff that's that's oppressive. <laughs> of course, it is a master's tools, and uh, if you if you've been following the whole, I think it was Aubrey Lord or something who said that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Yeah, it it can beat it at its own game temporarily, but if you, if you continue applying the master's tools, which I'm happy to because I believe those tools are pretty good. I do too. Then, yeah, then uh, then it's going to reassert and uh, and uh, go back to def defending the oppressive systems, as they would say. I never un understood that phrase anyway. Like, I don't see any reason the master's tools couldn't be used to dismantle uh, if they work. <clears throat> like, there's yeah, nothing about the fact that j they're just because there's the tools of the master. That... Yeah, but that's a Marxist idea, you know? You have this idea of, of uh, the the basis and the superstructure in the, in the most simple terms. When I come to this idea in our books on philosophy, I, I was completely flabbergasted. It's, I don't think people understand the full ramifications of it, but you have this basic idea that you have the, the physical resources and ability to use them. That's the basis, right? And then you have the superstructure on top. And the superstructure has a primary function, and that primary function is to preserve the system as it stands right now, to resist the change. And it, it contains art, it contains philosophy, it contains law, it contains religion, it contains philosophy, and all of the rest. So the idea is that it's that all of these things are part of the structure that's designed by nature, let's say, to preserve itself. So it's going to resist problems within it. That's the idea. And it's a fundamentally flawed idea on so many levels that it's just frustrating to think about, really. But uh, but that is the Marxist idea of how this works. And uh, in, in that frame, right, you have the master's tools. The master's tools are the superstructure. The superstructure protects itself. So but the idea, yeah. That's history, philosophy, like all the stuff you described. It's changing all the time. Like so, the, it it's not this static monolith that they see it as, and there's there's a political process that we can use to make change. So, I think the way they see it is distorted to beginning. Like I, I don't see I don't see this superstructure, this this inflexible, rigid superstructure. Yeah. If you did, you'd be woke. Huh? If you did, you would be woke. Well, it makes me, it makes me wonder about their sense of their own power, like. If if they see things that need to change, have they tried to work within the process to make those changes? Because a, a lot of times that can be effective. Or it seems like the assumption that the system is set up to perpetuate itself and is never going to change has not been challenged on a personal individual level by by it's just a belief they adopt. In yeah, and place they do of have consistency. experience or personal agency or trying to make change. Yeah. At the same time, though, they think that if they, if they just realize that they can change it together and just move as a mass, then they can change it and get a better system. So, this is what this is what makes me think that uh, you know James Lindsay when he talks about how it's a gnostic religion, 
mm-hmm. is what makes me think he's right. That uh, they have this idea that if you ju- if just everybody awakes to the idea that they become woke to the to the fact that they are actually able to change the world as they see it into what they want it to be, which is actually a huge leap because there's a huge difference between being able to change something and being able to get what you want from it. Right. Like I, I but, don't necessarily have a problem that they they realize their power to make change. Like yeah, I don't either. But that's a troll's truism. You know, have you read uh, Shack- the Shackle paper yeah. on uh, the vacuity of postmodernist methodology? Nope. No. So it 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 just tries to use the postmodernist game, and postmodernist is basically synonymous with Marxist and radical in this in this case. It's not the same, but it's close enough that you don't need to worry about the differences. So it tries to use their rhetorical game against them by naming the mechanics, the dynamics they use. And one of them is the troll's truism. So a truism is something that is true on the face of it, right? A troll's truism is something that is true on the face of it, but doesn't mean what it sounds like. <laughs> so for example, you have the everything is constructed idea. And anything constructed can be constructed differently. You can say, yeah, it can be constructed differently, but uh, are there limits to that? And uh, if you're if you're part of this tradition, this this Marxist tradition, chances are you would say no to the latter one. There are no limits to that. It never stops. There's well, no... it's not that it never stops. It's that they, it's that they think you can have the perfect world. What do what do they want? Like if, and I'm sure they don't all agree, and they're going to infight at some point. Absolutely. Like what is it? A world with no white men? What what is their like? What is their vision of equality or an ideal world or a perfect that they're moving toward? So that, that's probably at least two two kinds of people here. One of them would say that the ideal world is one where everybody recognizes that they are equal, and uh, you have that, and then they think that that means that everybody gets the same. They think everybody recognizes that they're equal means equal outcomes. I was probably three or four, maybe five years old when I realized that's not real. Like that's just not realistic. That's not how humans are. Like probably any animal species, and it's nobody's fault. That that's just the given of yeah. our condition. Yeah, but this tradition believes that everything we call nature, which you alluded to earlier, you know, is actually something that's been called nature by the superstructure to justify keeping things as they are. They're, they're skeptical to it because it limits change. Okay. It's a very deep philosophical disagreement. And it's really, you could even argue that it's a theological disagreement, that they think that nature is constructed by humans in order to limit what humans construct. <sighs> they can't, nature, like there's a thing, there's something external called nature. Obvious. Like they're yeah. not denying. Like I know the Gnostics, and and the they're f- not denying it, but they're confused. And what that, that's one of the consequences of using things like trolls truisms all the way. You have it's not only trolls truisms either. It's not just things that are true, but but sound like they mean something else, and they actually do. You also have this thing called an equivocating fulcrum, which is uh, recognized as a radical redefinition of something. So you take something like truth and say that truth is what is. I like to say what is reliable. But a more common definition is something like uh, truth is what corresponds to reality, right? And then you get Foucault. And what does Foucault say about truth? Truth is a system of managing, generating, and so on statements. That's a radical redefinition. 
because now it's no longer talking talk about some talk about corresponding to or reflecting reflecting reality in a way that is reliable. Now it's now it's a matter of the system that decides what is true, and he's made those things synonymous. And that's a radical redefinition. <clears throat> and the result of that radical redefinition is that when people who follow him talk about it, you don't know which one of these they mean. And if they're thoroughly convinced, they won't know which one they mean. They won't think there's a difference. This you, It seemed like this used to work itself out in the academies. If, if they were going to redefine something, everybody would debated and discussed and it would just happen organically or naturally what at some point like i don't know how it captured the academics if i were a professor in a classroom and somebody walked in and and said you need to start teaching this racism or this oppressive i, I would tell them to get out and let me teach like that's stupid it 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 doesn't match logic reason and but at some point, either the, the critical thinkers capitulated. Stop that. You don't need to say critical. Just say thinkers. <laughs> the thinkers capitulated or they got per pushed out. Like, yeah. But I don't know how, how people like me and you and, and the professors I know can be in a classroom and just go along with this. But at some point, and I'm still fascinated how it happened, the academies, like this made its way in. It, it got past the defenses of the thinkers that to me should have stopped all this at the gate yeah. and it didn't happen yeah and there's lots of reasons for that we can go into some if you want so for starters fundamentally this marxist idea of the base and the superstructure when you look at the implications the implications are a conspiracy theory they think that the superstructure is conspiring it's conspiring through people to limit freedom and they would think of it as freedom and that's why they talk about liberation all the time. What, so what they, freedom they to, to do what? What freedom do they not have? They don't think about freedom like that. Okay. But if they if they did, they would do it from a Habermasian perspective where they see what it looks like people are free to do. And then they would say, can I do that? And uh, if not, well, you're not free to do that. So you don't have equal rights, for example. But... Uh, <clears throat> What would be an ex like a realistic example? Like free to own yachts and and mansions is one thing, but what's a realistic? Here's, here's a here's one that this program hits some people very close to home. So the freedom to be called by the pronoun you're used to, the pro the pronoun you want. That's not a freedom people have, but it seems like it because because the overlap between what people expect to be called and what they physically are is usually present but in a certain group of people it's not and so they're not they don't have that freedom they don't have that right but it's not actually right it just looks like that to a bad rational reconstruction following habermas i mean i, I don't have a problem with people wanting to be called certain <clears throat> things it's the it's the for sure. me it's the gas law. like they want to be called something where you have to suspend your entire sense of reality yeah. in order to And I think that's a right. It's not a simple social convention like saying ma'am or sir. There's something... You have to fundamentally like shift your reality to give them what they're asking for. Yeah, and or I think I'm, you can do that. And it's 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 not a right... 
I don't think it's a right we all have. Like, I don't... It's not a right, fundamentally. It's a privilege. The privilege of having a... Of having your experience of yourself match what people assume it to be. I don't even... Think, like, gender, gender fluidity or whatever. Non-binary. So... Say you're non-binary. That means at any given moment you could fall anywhere on the male female spectrum. I can't. Well, that's the fluid that. thing. That's a fluid yeah. thing. Well, gender fluid. That's yeah. invisible to me. I don't know what's going on in your head every second. To me, you look male. So to expect me to to be tuned in to your non-binaryness, which is highly subjective, I can't see any of it. Even if I wanted to give you that, how could I realistic realistically do it when I don't know what gender you are at any given moment? There's no way for me to tell visibly. And yeah. so I'm just kind of going along with, with your word. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I'm genuinely affirming that you're that gender because I, I can't. It doesn't have any meaning for me. So it's just yeah. a little social convention that I'm playing along. And moreover, you can't do it before you know the person. Right. When you see the person on the street and you don't know them and you're not going to interact at all beyond just seeing seeing that person, you might say, "There was a, there was this guy over there. He had a pretty funny look to him." And oh shit, this person identifies as a she. But I'm they still come. That's the tension because but you wouldn't know because people, you had to assume. Yeah, I call people that by what they look like to me, like what they the impression they make on my brain. It, it's usually yeah. male or female. That's what most people do, I imagine. And that's it. That's as complex as I'm able to get. So if they want something more sophisticated than that, I can't give them that, even if I wanted to. Yeah. And uh, that's really how, how, sim how, how it should be. I think people should just be able to understand that uh, some things you have to assume. And you assume based on what is practical for you. And if it lines up with what, the, what you expect or, or what the other person expects, nice. If it doesn't, well, shit. Let's not let's not make too big of a deal about it because it's after all just a couple of words. Right. It wasn't meant in a bad way in any way. Anything. It was just said. It's not hatred. It's not phobia. It's not yeah. anger or any. But of that's where they get you with the idea of microaggressions. Yes. <clears throat> and and I work in mental health. And if someone came to me, I could easily help them to handle those kind of microaggressions. They wouldn't even be an issue. So. I don't even know what they want there. <laughs> well, one of the things it could do, you know, I, I don't know how many how many patients you've encountered who deal who struggle with microaggressions, but uh, as to me, as an outsider to the field, it seems perfectly plausible that somebody could could be so worried about microaggressions that they res respond by saying, "Oh, you did something that I consider a microaggression. I can't trust you." And so you don't get that report, you know? Do you think that could happen? What, the re report? Yeah, so the relationship of trust, right? But you don't, mental health, you don't You don't manage to connect to the person you're trying to help. And so... Oh, report. Without, report. Yeah. 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 I barely ever hear that word spoken. So I, I have not had a client come to me like their issues are usually not microaggressions there's usually real stuff trauma no wonder life goals no yeah. one's ever come to me to, to say i was microaggressed help me yeah but one of the things that these critical theories do or this this, crit, this critical marxism does is that 
it trades people to see it and once they see it they they have these kinds of layers of defense that get, can be put up even from people that are trying to help i lost a friend over that once tell me about that yeah so it was somebody i had worked with on a on preparing a concert because musician and all of that and uh, and uh, just after trump got elected I, i'm going to say she because she looked like uh, she at the time she considers herself trans but uh, was still definitely physically a female called so called herself dan i don't think i can say much more than that just uh, just to keep anonymity and all of that but uh, she posted something on facebook about how terrified she was that donald trump had been elected in on the other side of the ocean and uh, how she thought that people that it showed that people wanted to kill people like her it was uh, pretty scary like i panicked and freaked out too me and all my liberal friends did none of us thought it meant that he wanted to kill like that's that's a leap like that's an emotional leap that, yeah. that can come from trauma that can come from inexperience naivete yeah. but moreover we're looking that, at trump here and uh, trump is is not very well reported on for this but you know he was i think he was the first republican to to put up a pride flag on on uh, one of his rallies oh i didn't even know that yeah so that's no joke this if anything this guy and people who follow him would know that he's, he's he supports their rights as other as equal human beings and there's no reason to assume that that he and his supporters don't well i mean he did ban do the transgender ban in the military in the, in the military yeah, yeah. And there's probably a couple of reasons for that, not least the Christian part of the base. But let's just say a ban of on on a dangerous job is not the same as wanting to kill someone. That that I agree. Yeah. So we should try to keep the cool head when talking about these kinds of things. And yeah, that ban yeah. was not even on the table at the time when when this friend of mine made this uh, post on Facebook. And uh, so what I did was I just pointed out the facts I knew about it and how she could she could relax because it didn't look like it was going to be that big of a deal and i never heard from her again was this all social media that it, yeah, it was person because we had we'd moved to different places to continue studying after high school i lost a friend too over social media like we used to hang out on zoom all the time we were fine but on facebook and twitter that's where the communication starts to break down and I, I lose the friends you mentioned keeping a, a cool head and one of the things i want to try to figure out is what to do about all this so is is everybody keeping a cool head a good first step when we're approaching this like well it's definitely hard when it's personal i can say that for sure i've had a I, recently i ran into it head on and uh, it's just not fun at all it's very hard to stay clear clear-minded so i can't i don't think i can say too much because it's kind of still ongoing oh. but uh, but i one of the things i did was i told people that uh, you actually have to assume pronouns sometimes and for this i was like i was put to the question on do i understand that pe that people are equal human beings and uh well i do but let's say a lot more was happening at the same time, and I was extremely stressed out, and some of it was a bit more personal, and uh, it made it really hard to see clearly what was going on. So, yeah. so what is the way forward then? When you can, when you can, it's def it definitely helps to slow down, just to make sure that you don't 
jump to conclusions. Jumping to conclusions is very often going to leave a couple of steps uh, that aren't looked at properly, and those steps, well, if there's a if there's a trap there, you you're probably going to step on it. So everybody so, on all sides, to the extent that they can, just yeah. calm, calm down. Yeah, and so. it won't be one hundred percent for anyone probably. But the more you can do it, the the less you're going to get things wrong, and the less you get things wrong, the easier it will be to communicate. Okay. So that's a, that's a, that's at least the thing I think I can think of is a big start. And uh, beyond that, I think people need to understand that uh, what we're looking at here is actually a a religion. Fundamentally, it is. That is not to say anything bad about religions. It is. Uh, it is a religion among others, but this is a religion that doesn't understand it's a religion. It thinks it's science. <laughs> and so it uh, it acts with the authority of science in ways that religions are outlawed from doing. It also doesn't have the foothold, at least in the U.S., that our other religions do. Yeah, well, it seems to have a foothold in most religions, most normal religions, and because people don't know, they try to have both at the same time. But uh, the foothold is definitely much more a matter of the tyranny of the majority, or the feeling of the majority, you know, social tyranny. <laughs> the idea, yeah, so it's, we're looking at the social tyranny on the basis of it. Which makes it feel like it is everywhere when it is in fact not. But it is in a lot of places and it tries to get into all positions of power it can because it thinks that's where it can do real change. And uh, obviously, if you want to change the system to make it, to replace it with the perfect system, well, where would you go where you can change things? Obviously. So, yeah, it goes into the, all, the, all these kinds of places and it tries to change things. And it, you will usually do it by way of something like a radical redefinition, as I mentioned, equivocating fulcrum. Learn to watch for those. Notice them when they happen. And remember, if, if the person who made the redefinition says something later, and it seems to build on that redefinition, just remember, it might be the opposite of what is the case for the normal definition. And so it shouldn't be treated as the same. If anything, you should probably try to find another word for it. So you don't confuse it in your mind. That sounds like good advice. <clears throat> my my experience with Christians, just like talking and arguing with Christians, it's very difficult to get people. If if there if this is a religion or religion like, it's very difficult to get people to see that. So part of the solution depends on exposing that or or enlightening people to what they're involved in. I'm not very hopeful about that. What can the rest of us do? that clearly see that it has all the features of a religion that doesn't involve necessarily getting the woke to see that? Or are there things we can do on a practical level to protect and advance ourselves? I think so, but it's a little bit harder to pinpoint. For my own part, I've been trying to kind of vaccinate people against it by teaching them to see the, see the, see the, Let's just say the rhetorical tricks, the maneuvers that are being used by this, uh, by this, and understand how they cause problems and why they are not reliable. So that they will see, oh, they're using that here. It's not reliable. And so they'll kind of insulate themselves against it so they don't need to, so they don't need to be told, essentially. That's what you do a lot on Twitter. With you. Yeah, I, a lot of what I do on Twitter and a lot of what I do in classes. How is it, it working? Um like on social media, I can see the benefit of it. Does it work on a personal level? 
I think it mostly works on people who already understand what is going on. The the friends I have who I talked about these kinds of things, they they are very impressed by how how deliberate and able I am to do it. But uh, but part of the problem here is that it's on a very abstract level, and uh, most people are not interested in doing anything more than just getting through the courses. Right. <clears throat> so they'll see it as a, as a digression, and will just say, or they'll think, can we just move on? Mm-hmm. And uh, well, we could move on, and we should move on. If there wasn't a big problem here, that's going to have uh, downstream effects. We don't want those downstream effects, and they don't understand that, and it's unfortunate. But I think that in the universities, you kind of have to be careful about it because there's just so. There's so many people who could be triggered by it. And I don't mean triggered in you know, the, the, the good old meme sense, right? The triggered SJW kind of thing. I mean, I'm thinking about it a bit more abstractly. So I've, since I read a little bit about Peterson on psychology, I'm thinking we have personalities within our, within our brains, various different personalities, and they, and they deal with different parts of our lives. And uh, what this ideology has done for a lot of people is that it has created a, let's just say, a social justice warrior personality. And what you want to avoid doing is you want to avoid to trigger this personality in them by what you say to them. It will be a little different different people and it has different axes. You have one for race, you have one for sex and so on. How, that's, how do you do that? I'm autistic. I struggle with that as it is, like walking very delicately. And how does somebody even begin to do that? I don't know what's going to... If I'm having a casual conversation or even a... Yeah, it's really unfair. But if you you have to deal with this, you have to to be on a higher level than the people you're dealing with intellectually to be be able to avoid falling pitfalls. I feel very... I'm very sorry for all the people who see it as bullshit, understand it as bullshit, but are too clumsy with the words to get it across without getting people to explode in their faces. I think I'm one of those people. <laughs> what do you, I, I do try though. Um, say you do trigger someone. What do you, is there, what do you, how do you, what do you do from there? How do you recover from that or keep it from escalating once you've realized you've triggered this personality? I think uh, that's, that's probably very personal. So I can't give general advice, but I would think that, uh, it's not a good idea to try to do something to fix it while emotions are high. It's probably best to let it simmer down a little bit first in some way. It, it, Just, there's yeah, something so about calm down first. specifically that escalates. That, like you're so tempted to fire off that angry t- and, and it keeps spiraling up to the next level. And I even get pulled into that without even realizing. The next thing I know, I'm in the middle of this huge Twitter fight and I don't even know how it happened. So there's something about Twitter that's very seductive in drawing people into those escalations. And one of the things yeah. we're working on with our group, Andrew and Neil and all of us, is how to minimize that. Like, what are some things people can do to not send off that tweet or not get caught in one of those escalation spirals on social media? Yeah. I have a rule I follow that I can probably share on here that uh, makes that I think is good, but also kind of demanding, especially when you start with it. It's the, it's a, it's quite a simple rule on the face of it. So it's just when you when you're not obviously joking, try to only say things that you think you can defend. I mean, I think I do. Yeah, it, everybody. It's a, 
it's a it's a good measure, but uh, you should stop before you post at least and think, am I going too far here? But a lot of that depends on knowing the other person, like being able to. <laughs> yeah, and it's not like there's not problems with that approach either. I mean, for one, if you do that consistently, as I've tried to do, you're going to end up being able to. Everything you're going to say is going to build on things that build on things that build on things that build on things ad nauseum, which makes it an overwhelming force for people who are not expecting it. And uh, that is not, not very conducive to good social interactions. So we should always, I guess we should always remember, and it's kind of a very surface thing to say, but people are complicated. They don't understand fully what they're doing. And we need to have some respect for that. And remember, that it also includes us. We don't know what, fully what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So we should have, we should extend that charity and always, always have a door open for people to, to not explode. Now, if they if they do take the option to explode and you give them a way out, well, at least they did it and not you. And then you should probably consider, is it good for me to keep this up? Is it good for them if we keep this up? So I've broken up a couple, broken off a couple of conversations by saying I don't, I think we're both going to regret it if we continue. I, I do that too, and then they'll type something else after that, and I'll yeah. have to type something back, and then I just pull right back. So you, you at some yeah. point, you're just like, I'm done. You walk away, you close it off, and you don't get pulled back into it. Well, I I try to not get pulled back into it. I mean, it's not easy, right? It is a very <laughs> tempting thing to get into, especially when people are in that snippy, snarky mode, and they try to give you a gotcha, and, and it's almost a gotcha, but not quite, and so you you really want to show them why it's not a gotcha. But uh, at some point, you just have to realize that if you keep doing that, you're going to waste your life on it. And you're probably going to make everybody mad in the process. Uh, yeah, I think I hate that you're right, but I think you are right. Um, I hate it too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one th- I, I have this theory, and I'm dying to try it out, that this stuff doesn't happen. On, it's not going to happen on Zoom, or it's not going to happen in the same way. That there's something about that medium that is it lends itself to this or is vulnerable to those kind of interactions. I I got in a Twitter fight last a few days ago with some trans activists and I invited them on a Zoom. I'm like, well, let's take this on a Zoom and see if it changes the discussion. But they were they didn't want to come. They refused. Yeah, they could think based on the theory, they could think of that as uh, giving legitimacy to hate. I think it's an opportunity to... Yeah, and that's a fundamental difference between worldviews here. In the in the social constructionist worldview that the, that this Marxist tradition has built, everything we do is what builds reality. Nature is only what we make it, and so on, as I said earlier, you know? that that's how, that's how they fundamentally think about it. And people are confused. They don't think about this in this way for everything, but they think about it for, in this way for some things, and they don't understand that it doesn't matter with the rest because they haven't thought about it because they haven't had to. And if you point, if you force them to think about it, they'll get mad because cognitive dissonance is is a pain. Mm-hmm. But uh, so really, the best way is to just try to get them around it when they're not mad, and when you try to get them around it, just wade through that minefield with care because there are plenty of minds that are going to trigger if you step wrong. It's, it, it takes courage. It takes uh, it takes virtues of all kinds. But uh, I don't see another way to deal with it. You know. What talk a little bit about social constructivism because I know that comes up a lot 
in your Twitter work? Yeah, not least in my pinned tweet, which is about how social constructionism, the, the, the word social construct is fundamentally misleading. So when we talk about something being constructed, or somebody being a construction worker, for example, we talk about we talk about it as if they built something with intent. And in those cases, that's true. Like Legos. Yeah. And we talk about scientific constructs. Those are also de devised with intent to capture some meaning about the world. Mm -hmm. So in, in those cases, there's also it also seems legitimate to call them constructs. But there's a lot of things that we call constructs, especially that this tradition calls constructs, which are most likely not built on intent which they just assume are built on intent implicitly by using that word and probably not realizing it. One <clears> of those uh, Charles truisms things. As I said, everything constructed can be constructed differently. According to Shackle, that was the, that was the ur-truism of the ur-troll, the, the one at the bottom of everything. And I think there's definitely something to that. The question is how, how deep that goes. But uh, that if, you, if you look at what people talk about the sort of constructs, you might notice that most of the sort of constructs people talk about are are related to something they consider oppressive. Mm -hmm. And uh, for people who have followed my work on Twitter, they'll see that I've spoken a lot about the master-slave dialectic in the last half year or so. That's because I mm -hmm. think that everything they say about social constructs in this sense, talking about social constructs of domination, which they, they don't usually feel the need to say, but it's pretty clear from the context if you just look at it. The social constructs of domina domination are, in this worldview, built on the master-slave dialectic. So in that dialectic, you have subjects. Subjects are sources of change. People are subjective. They, ha they are subjects. Every person is a source of change. Groups are also sources of, ch sources of change. So groups are also subjects in this model. And the idea is that you have two subjects that meet, and uh, they are equal, but they don't understand it. Or let's say they are equal, but not in a physical way. And so they, they think they have to fight and so they struggle, and uh, one comes out on top. And what, the, what that one does then is it constructs, there's that word, it constructs a system to preserve its status as master and the subordinate status, status of the other. That's from the point of view of the slave. Like, the slave is saying that that's what's happening, right? No, or that's from the point of view of the theorist. Hegel. Who projects it onto the slave with the true consciousness. So Marx, for example, who was not, I, I don't think most people would consider Marx with his life supported by the obviously bourgeois Engels to be a proletarian man. He was, he was a, I, I think he's more of a poet and a, a poet and as such than he is, a, 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 let's say, poet and theologian than he is anything else. People treat him as a scientist and so on, but no. He's more of a poet. Just look at his language. <clears throat> Apparently he's very inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clearly. I mean, how would you get people to follow you this, this much if you weren't? But inspiring doesn't mean right. That's important to remember too. But Are you there... have this constructs, right? Mm -hmm. And they, the Marxist originally looked at money as this kind of thing. That's, so, they, so money accumulates and we, take, we, we value money as a social construct because it lets us get what we want, because other people agree about it. They construct it socially that it is valuable. That's how they think about it. And so it is built with the intent of value. And that value just so happens to get into the pockets of the wealthy. 
Now, that means that money is part of the system of domination in this theory. And so, the perfect system does not have the traits of domination. It has removed all the social, all the social constructs of <clears throat> domination. And you see, you'll see this when we talk about gender as a social construct. They want to remove gender. You'll see this when they talk about uh, sex as a social construct. They want to remove sex from the from the social relationships to get rid of all the oppression based on sex. They they see you see the about money. They want to remove money from the equation. So I think that probably the most controversial case of this I could I could point to now would be you you will own nothing and you will be happy. Yeah. Because private property is a social construct. After all, they follow Rousseau on this. It is somebody managed to fool somebody else to think that's that something belonged to him and so we got the social construct of property including wealth which is a symbol of which is a, which is a part of the system of domination so they want to remove all of these systems of domination and all the social constructs which comprise them well it sounds but, like they, they want to do it with hierarchy in, in general which i don't think is real I, i'm a yeah. group facilitator and i run a lot of groups and i can tell you if you get even four or five people together in a room like this natural hierarchy is just going to form anywhere yeah. throughout time throughout history the animal kingdom this seems like pie in the sky idealism like just completely unreal yeah. what if we were all beautiful wealthy rich? like th this seems like a child no, beauty is a social construct because it creates a stratification you have the beautiful and the, and the ugly, right? So they think so nature they think creates is part of it. Like these hierarchies emerge, like they're not created. Yeah, they emerge. And emerge is a key word because I propose that people should stop talking about social constructs and start talking about intersubjective emergence. So between subjects, I accept that they talk that subject Hegelians and Marxists and all of this, they love talking about subjects, but subject is a valid word sometimes, and it's older than that. So I'll say intersubjective, it is something that more people recognize, and it, and it has emerged. People don't understand how, but it came about. And it might have an intention behind it, it might not. We don't know that yet. So we should talk about emergence instead of constructs, to stop implying that it's an intent, intention when we don't know. And also to stop implying that it's definitely social, because it is recognized by people, it is not limited to the social. Or well, we don't know, at least. Have so, you yeah, had it, success it with that? Everybody I've spoken to about it seems to like the idea. And we could note also that uh, in this frame, the word social construct would be an intersubjective emergence. So mm -hmm. it is it is subject to continuous emergence, and we could we could start talking about something else instead. For example, the more accurate intersubjective emergence. I feel like we're getting to the good stuff right at the end. Would you? <laughs> Neil couldn't be here today. He was supposed to join us too. Would you want to come back and do a second a follow up, and we can have sure. And sure. Okay. Well, let's do that, and we can um, start with the intersubjective emergence. Okay. There's a lot more we could talk about. I, well, I, I have. I feel yeah. like I've just got started. I could sit here for all day and have these yeah. conversations. Yeah. The first time I spoke to a PhD, I I shocked her by talking for six hours about stories. Oh man, well, you should come on. You should come on one of our zooms. We had our book clubs. Um, we went eleven hours one night. We went ten hours the next week. They averaged six or seven hours. That's cool. I think there's definitely room for these conversations. Well, um, 
in entity curious entity thank you yep. very much for being our guest today and hopefully we'll get to do it again i'd be is happy there, to. you have you have a quora you said you have twitter do you have a yeah, blog I, or is there any social media that you want to let people know well about? i've written a couple of essays on minds where i go by the name of the entity okay we'll put all of this in the description link too and I have uh, and I have a YouTube channel which I mostly use to post comments. There's some music on there as well, and I'm I I might start posting more more idea related stuff. Is it in music the near future? Made? Your music? Yeah, music oh. I made and some lists I made some more than ten years ago of uh, cool video game music because uh, <laughs> I think people should look more at video game music. There's a lot of great stuff in there. My roommate is making a video game and he makes he's working on the music, so I hear it in his room. All the time. What? Um, just send me the the links that you want posted, and we'll get them in the description. Is there anything that you want to close with, or want us to know about you or your work? Well, I probably spent more time studying these uh, social phenomena and uh, these ideas than I've spent officially studying, and I've been studying full time for six years. So, oh, so this is not even your main. Area. No. What do you want to do with it? Like going forward, what's your career goal? I, I've, a, I think that I have something to contribute to the whole, this whole problem between re religion and atheism. Thing. Oh, I, definitely. I think I have something to contribute to, to, that to, to, to peace between the two sides. And uh, we're building on the idea that both of them are actually dedicated to truth, and they and that they use. Different that some things people consider propositions are actually definitions, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so we could just say, "Do I accept this definition? Can I work with this definition, even though I would rather define it slightly differently?" And uh, I'd say science point to yes. Well, maybe next time on our second episode, we can try a conversation around this. Um, intersubjective emergence and see what emerges between three of us. Like Pretty we can cool. give a live example or model. That would be of uh, Daya or Trya Logos. He is <laughs> words borrowed from John Mabeki. Yeah. Nice to talk again. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on and um, we'll do it again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes to see what each of us is reading. Different news with different views. You can find us at holdmydrinkpodcast.com, all major podcast platforms, and on YouTube. Or subscribe on Substack at truthinbetween.substack.com so you never miss an issue. If you want to join our Discord community, drop us a line. And until next week, May your conversations be constructive and your divisions diminished. Cheers.